seated in this place. The kids can be dismissed if they haven't been dismissed. And uh, that passage in John, I believe it's chapter 6, where Jesus had just given a hard teaching. It talked about how we needed to eat his flesh and drink his blood to have eternal life. Right, this, this physical picture for a spiritual truth, a spiritual reality, it was so puzzling to the crowd, so uh, befuddling, if I can use that word, right, that they were just, they, they were done. Hundreds of followers leaving because they couldn't understand. And as we've said again and again in this series, myth busting, there are times where you may read scripture and you think, man, this is hard to understand. You start asking questions, start wrestling with the text, and as I've said again and again, guess what? You're in good company. <laughs> Peter and the disciples, we see again and again in the Gospels, there were moments where they were confused. It didn't quite, didn't quite understand in the moment. We also talked about how Peter in his epistle, he even speaks not just of the teachings of Jesus, but he points to, at the end of one of his letters to the church, the teachings of Paul, and he says, sometimes they're confusing, right? We've looked at this passage in 2 Peter 3, verses 16 through 18. Where Peter says, Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. See, Peter warns about distortions of God's truth. He warns that these distortions can derail our faith, right? That there's half-truths, as we've been talking about, that can hurt us. We've looked at Galatians 5, 9 in the Amplified Version again and again where it says that these half-truths pervert the concept of faith and they can mislead the church. And the solution given to us by Peter in this text is to grow in grace and to grow in knowledge, right? So when you know the greater content, you know the greater context of Scripture, you can test these half-truths and walk in the full truth of God where Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Right? The half-truths can hinder, but when you grasp the full truth of God, it sets us free. So Peter calls us here when he tells us to grow in knowledge, to treasure, to value the Word of God and Scripture and the Bible. Has anybody here been to the Museum of the Bible in D.C. yet? I envy you, right? I repent of that envy, but I envy you, right? I, I want to get up there. I've been itching to go to the Museum of the Bible in D.C. It looks incredible. And one of the exhibits that I want to get to and I've, I've read up about and I've seen pictures about is, is the slave Bible. Right, so it was this Bible that slave masters and, and white people would use to attempt to convert slaves to Christianity. And what's so unique about it? What's unique about it is there's a whole lot that's missing, like Moses, you don't get introduced to Moses being saved from a genocide, put in a basket, and saved by Pharaoh's daughter. You get introduced to Moses when he's an old man at Mount Sinai much later in the story. So the whole exodus of slavery from Egypt, everything from Genesis 45 to Exodus 19 is not in Scripture. If you know that story, you might understand why. Because that whole, that whole testimony of God where he doesn't just hear, but he responds to the cry of the oppressed and the enslaved, and he delivers them from bondage to freedom, and that sets the tone for all of Scripture, it wasn't there. It was omitted. And even as the ball gets rolling at Sinai and Exodus 19 in this Bible, there's still glaring omissions, like Exodus 21:16, which reads, kidnappers must be put to death whether they are caught in possession of their victims or have already sold them as slaves. But of course there were certain verses that were left in there, like Ephesians 6, 5, servants be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ. So why do I share this? 
Why do I share this? A.W. Tozer has a quote. He says, heresy is not so much rejecting as selecting. The heretic simply selects the parts of the scripture he wants to emphasize and lets the rest go. Now, in this series, we've talked about half-truths and mythology that almost happens unintentionally. When you cling to one scripture and, and don't recognize the greater context and content in scripture. But here we see that the curators of this Bible, right, they, they were very selective. Matter of fact, 90% of the Old Testament is missing. 50% of the New Testament is missing. And we might gasp or be shocked because you read Revelation, right? It says don't mess with the contents of this Bible. And we say, how could you do that? How could you just pull portions of scripture out? But if we're serious and we're honest and we're raw, <laughs> we could ask the question, have we omitted parts of the Bible that we don't read or we, we don't consider? Do we read the Bible? Or are we one of those 30% of Christians in America who will never read the Bible cover to cover? Or the 82% of Christians in America that go to church but never open the Bible outside of church? Right? The danger, as we've seen again and again in this sermon series, is when your faith is fed by bits and pieces, distortions and half-truths can slip in and do damage. When you take out parts of the Bible, you're susceptible to the very thing that Peter warned of, which is to be carried away by distortions of truth. You know, one myth that led to error and sin that's deeply rooted in our nation was the myth of black inferiority, right? And one agent, soberingly, that was controlling the narrative for the first hundred years of slavery was the church, was clergy, was preachers who, who would take portions of scripture and rather than comprehensive theology, promote religious belief that benefited one group of people. So myths settled into traditions and before long they were part of systemic structures. And one myth that I want to highlight briefly as we get into the subject tonight that was used to uphold slavery, it was called the curse of ham. Now this is not the Old Testament teaching not to eat pork, bacon, or ham. No, this is <laughs> Noah had a son named Ham. And it's in Genesis chapter 9 verses 24 through 27. So a lot of us are familiar with the story of Noah from Sunday school, right? The ark, the, the, the saving of creation, two by two. And, and, and the, maybe you're familiar that when the, the flood is over, God makes a covenant with Noah. There's a rainbow. And after that, again, the animals start to populate the earth again. Noah, as it says in Scripture, becomes a man of the soil. So he's working the ground. He's, he's planting gardens. He plants a vineyard. And at one point in Genesis 9, he gets drunk off his own grapes, right? Passes out, exposed in his tent. And his son Ham sees this. Rather than fixing the situation, closing the tent, he runs to tell his brothers. So it says in Genesis 9, it says, When Noah woke up from his stupor, he learned that Ham, his youngest son, what he had done. Then he cursed Canaan, the son of Ham. May Canaan be cursed. May he be the lowest of servants to his relatives. Then Noah said, May the Lord, the God of Shem, be blessed, and may Canaan be his servant. May God expand the territory of Japheth, and may Japheth share the prosperity of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. So three times we see he's called to be a servant. Not just a servant, but the lowest of servants. Maybe you're thinking, how did this passage of Scripture ever become relevant and looked at again and again? And it's because Ham was the ancestor, the forefather of much of Africa. So many Christian leaders said that Africans and their descendants were called to be servants, the lowest of servants. And to question that, to rise up against that, would be to rise up against the divinely ordained will of God that you see here in Genesis 9. And this became all but authoritative. Never mind the fact, if you look at the text, 
Ham is one, or excuse me, Canaan is one of Ham's four sons. He had three other sons. Three other sons that were the forefathers of, I think it's Libya, Ethiopia, and Egypt. Two out of which were great civilizations. Right? And, and not, never mind the fact that as we're going to look at now, the Bible doesn't support this idea of generational curses. Right? Generational curses, it's not just church culture. It's, you see it throughout the world in different cultures. This belief in, in curses that are carried from generation to generation. And it creeps its way into church culture. Where maybe it's, it's, it's eating disorders, lust, uh, patterns of divorce, or, or children out of wedlock. It's not just sometimes patterns that you see in your family or scripts that you operate in, but some would say, oh, that's, that's a generational curse. Something you're bound to that's generation to generation. And I want to look at this briefly, not because I think it's a myth that saturates our culture here or saturates our culture now, but because tonight I want to look at, and again, it's fitting that it's a, a baby dedication tonight, how we're called as a church to pour into the next generation, to equip the next generation, to cheer on the next generation. And the question becomes, okay, how can we do that? How much control do we have? What's the cause and effect? And how do we lift up, equip, and cheer on the next generation? What's the cause and effect for better or for worse? You know, Numbers chapter 14, verse 18 is a passage that's uh, usually used to support this idea of generational curses. It says, the Lord is slow to anger and filled with unfailing love, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion, but he does not excuse the guilty. He lays the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even the children in the third and fourth generations. Now, this passage certainly speaks to legacy, that we leave a legacy. That our decisions don't just affect us. You know, I believe one of the greatest lies that the enemy sows about sin, especially the sins that we think nobody else sees, is that it only affects me. It's only going to hurt me. It's not going to hurt anybody else. It's not going to hurt my relationships. But that's a lie. Men, that's a lie. It's a lie that he sows in our hearts. It's almost never the case in, in seen and unseen ways. But while this verse certainly shows how our sins can affect the next generation, it isn't support for generational curses the way Many would try to apply it because while it points to the consequences of our sin, it doesn't point to the cause of them. It says children will be affected by their parents' sin, which is true, but not that children will sin because of them. Matter of fact, you look at the context of this passage in Numbers. This is Moses still leading that generation that refused to go into the promised land, sending his God, unwilling to go into the promised land. He, he said, guess what? Y'all can go wander in the wilderness till you all pass away. The next generation was obedient in that. Very obedient. If you read Joshua, obedient again and again. Now, were they without sin? No. Right? But they weren't bound to sin in the same way. You continue to go through the Old Testament. Ezekiel 18 is kind of like God's mic drop against this whole theory. Uh, it's a response by God to an ancient proverb that was often used in that culture that Ezekiel uh, references in the text, that the fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Like, wait, what? <laughs> It means that sometimes children suffer for their parents' actions instead of the parents themselves. And again, our actions affect our children. But God directly addresses this when he says the child will not be punished for the parents' sins. And the parent will not be punished for the ch child's sins. Righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteous behavior. And wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. Now again, are there consequences to our actions? Is there a legacy we leave? Absolutely. What isn't healed in our generation, what we don't heal is going to be handed down. 
You don't have to look any further than the fruit of the teachings of the curse of hand and racial inferiority. We're still walking in consequences of that in our culture today, generations later. But while we pass on consequences, they're not curses. We're not bound to it. We're not bound to racism. We're not bound to the sins of previous generations. We don't have to cling to it. We may be affected, but we're not bound generationally to the sins of those that came before us. You know, some might subconsciously subscribe to this idea of of generational issues because it kind of lifts off our responsibility. But Ezekiel 18 makes it abundantly clear. We're responsible for our own actions, our own agency, our own legacy in this life for better or for worse, good or bad. And we would do well to remember, as it says in Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. See, to believe that we as God's children are bound to sin, whether it's a, a specific sin or a general sin, it's beginning to reject the sufficiency of Christ, where his all-sufficient sacrifice be, starts to become insufficient, where you're not truly freed from sin's grasp. But, man, we sang that song, hallelujah, you have won the victory. He has won the victory. It was all-sufficient. We have freedom. We're not bound. Right? The picture of physical deliverance from slavery in Egypt is so essential to the Bible and so powerful because it prophetically paints the picture of what Jesus Christ did at the cross, delivering us from bondage of sin into freedom. Not just freedom, but so that we could serve God and he could be our true master. So you no longer have to live a slave to fear. You no longer have to live a slave to guilt. You no longer have to live a slave to, a slave to shame or, or the anxiety that maybe comes from that. It's the beautiful truth of the gospel. We're delivered from bondage into freedom. You know, Romans chapter 6, verses 16 and 18 says, Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. There's two key words in this passage. You choose. You choose. But the enemy loves to feed us half-truths and versions of his own slave Bible to keep us bound in chains. But to buy the lie that we're bound to choose sin is to, again, reject the covenant of God's grace that's available to us as those that will believe in him that there's freedom. There's freedom, there's grace, and there's mercy. Grace means, as you look at Ezekiel 18 and the truth of Scripture, that if you don't like the fruit of your family tree currently, you get to plant a new one. You get to plant seeds of righteousness in your life that you get to pass on as your legacy through the agency God gives you and the free will he gives you to that next generation. But as we keep on the subject of sowing generationally, again, I want to look at how can we, if that's the negative side, how can we positively sow in to the next generation? And I believe farming and gardening, that same picture, makes a good analogy for whether it's parenting, leading, mentoring, pastoring, Because you plant seeds and you you sow seeds into somebody's life. But the same way that the annual harvest may say more about the weather and, and, and aspects that are outside of the farmer's control, it may say more about that than the actual skills of, of the farmer. Like when we go to the DR, this is an agricultural society. And, and these people know what they're doing, but if they don't get rain, that affects the harvest. And in the same way, we sow seeds into the next generation, but we have to recognize that that there's so many factors. And that's what I want to look at tonight. Because is parenting important? Absolutely. We had that beautiful picture tonight, dedicating Ainsley, right? Rich and Kelsey standing up here and dedicating her to Jesus. Parenting is 
absolutely essential and important. It's the sacred duty, the sacred responsibility, but so much of the outcome, if we're honest, it's sometimes out of our hands. But you know, in our pride, we don't like to think this because we like to think that we have more control than we do. Take more credit for what we really can cause. And we subscribe again and again to cause and effect. Like we think, man, if I am wise financially, then I should be set financially. If I eat right and exercise, then my health should be good. I should be set. And if, and if I provide a godly home for my kids, then I'll have godly children. We subscribe to this idea of cause and effect. But sometimes, while those are great pursuits, while those are good, positive, godly pursuits, we don't control the outcome as much as we may think. That's why we have to lean into God again and again. But that's why I believe churchy myths and cliches so often get tied to cause and effect. And sure, generational curses, that's the negative side. But the positive side, I want to look at Proverbs 22.6. I think Proverbs 22.6, when you talk about the next generation and our children, there's probably not a verse that gets quoted more than this scripture, which says, start children off on the way they should go. And even when they are old, they will not turn from it. See, if you read the book of Proverbs from beginning to end, you see again and again and again this, this call to sow into the next generation. Right, to, to pour wisdom into the next generation, to teach the next generation, not even just speaking to parents, but again, leaders, ministers, mentors, people that just have a relationship with younger people. We're called to sow wisdom and teach them godly ways. But sometimes I think we take this promise or this passage as cause and effect, that again, a, a godly atmosphere will produce godly kids. A godly home, if we provide it, will produce godly kids. But this is a half-truth in multiple ways. And yes, we're called to, to point our children to our path as we'll talk about, but I believe this is a half-truth that can, that can hurt us in multiple ways. But first, context. You know, we've talked about in this series how we should look at Scripture when we're reading it and ask, okay, what is this? Right? We talked about women in ministry and how that was a, an epistle, a specific letter that Paul was writing to a church. And you may be reading Scripture. It might be a prophecy. It might be a parable. It might be history. Right, documenting what happened. Or it might be a proverb. And see, Proverbs 22.6, it's a proverb. Promises of God, right, those are checks that we should cling to and take to the bank. Return it to him again and again in prayer, claiming those promises. But Proverbs, they're observations about life. The best definition I ever heard is one I'll never forget. It's short sentences drawn from long experience. They're principles. At their core, they're general principles. So I would tell you that this, this verse is no guarantee on a, a method of parenting. There's not that cause and effect as much as we would love control and be able to say, if I do this, I'll see this. But the implication present in this verse is definitely the other side, where if we're passive in our parenting, if we're absent in our parenting, we're asking for trouble. And you look at the context of Scripture and the content of Scripture, you'll see this. Read 1 Samuel. And keep reading. You see, Eli refuses to discipline his sons. Right? People serving God just refuses to discipline them. And not only does he lose them, he loses his life and his legacy. Then you keep reading. You read about David, right? David gets props throughout Scripture. Why? Because he was an incredible military leader, an incredible warrior. He was a, a, an incredible king, led this nation. But he was an absentee father. He was a deadbeat dad. When you read scripture and how he, he interacted with his sons or didn't interact with them at all. 
And because of that, you, you see that this kingdom he built didn't last more than two generations because he, he didn't discipline his sons, didn't interact with his sons. Meanwhile, in the New Testament, when Paul writes to Timothy and talks about Timothy's faith, he immediately references the faith of his mother, the faith of his grandmother, that he was a part of this legacy of their faith. And that's why I believe in the New Testament, you see when Paul talks about leaders and, and ministers of the gospel, that their first ministry is their home. It's their wife. It's their kids because parenting is, should be a priority. Again, it's this sacred duty to steward children on behalf of God and lead them to the path of righteousness. And because of this weight of parenting, I know myself, because of this weight and this sacred duty, I feel like the pendulum for me naturally starts swinging to being overprotective and, and, and overbearing. Maybe I'll change. I've only been doing it for a couple years, right? Maybe, maybe in different seasons there's different ways. Because I think that you can take the advice, let your kids make mistakes. And honestly, that's good advice, right? Because we all make mistakes. We need to learn to get back up again. We all make mistakes. We need to learn that there's consequences, right? So often we try to prepare the path for the child so they'll never trip, never stumble. We need to prepare the child for the path, right? But, but again, the pendulum can swing too far. Where let your child make mistakes. You say it because you want to sound gracious, but really it's passive. Right? Really you're just pulling a King David. You know, there's this tension in parenting between being controlling and being passive. And like so many other areas in life. It's hard to navigate that tension. Sometimes we navigate it poorly. But there's, for each one of us, each one of us as parents, each one of us even in relationships, there's unique situations, circumstances, there's unique conditions with each one of our children. And that's going to factor in. But if they miss the path that God has for them, come on, I would tell you, let it be about the conditions you can't control and not because of the condition of your parenting. All right, we should prepare the child for the path. We should point them to the path again and again as best we can for each of our unique children. But where the application of Proverbs 22.6 gets screwy and off the rails, in my opinion, is, is in the second half. Where it says, even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Because I was in youth ministry for nearly a decade. And about half of that, I was the youth pastor. So I would have a relationship with these youth, these teens, and I would often have conversations with their parents know about the decisions they were making or the path that they're on and what might be around the corner if they continue in this way. And I confronted and came face to face in a lot of these conversations with really mythology built on this verse, Proverbs 22.6, where I remember clear as day speaking to one parent who was like, yeah, he's, he's out sowing his, his wild oats, but he'll come back. Another parent who was like, yeah, she's, she's out living like that, but when she hits rock bottom, She'll know where to turn. Like, when did that become the strategy? Because I think we've mixed up, we mix up this whole will not turn with will return. We add the, the re where it's not there. You know, there's no, there's no promise that we can take to the bank that God wrote that a child that's given a godly atmosphere will be a godly person. Right? They, they, they bought into what's really become a spiritual urban legend. But unlike the generational curse where children will be cursed by the sins of their parents, we think that children are guaranteed to be righteous based on the righteousness of their parents. It's cause and effect, but in the opposite direction. Now, I don't share this to say that, oh, you should, you should give up hope, abandon hope. Right? My parents raised me up in a church, right? I went to church every weekend. I call myself a drug baby because they dragged me to church, right, every week. So many seeds were planted, but I was a 
I was a wayward son. I didn't come to Christ in my 20s. My parents never gave up hope. Never gave up hope. And that could be the testimony of of your, your child. That could be the testimony of that neighbor that you've been trying to share the gospel with for years, right? And God is still working. And we're never to give up hope. But I share this because when the meaning gets off the rails, even just a couple degrees, it, it can hurt people. It can especially hurt parents, right? And I would say two ways. And I'll just hit on the first one quick where really we take more credit than we should for our children's life. Like rejoice. If your child is following the Lord, rejoice. Pat your spouse on the back. High five each other. Praise God for that, right? Celebrate that. But don't let it feed foolish pride. What do I mean? Because when we take more credit than we should for the path our child is on, and we look at that parent whose child maybe isn't walking the same path, we begin to, you know, get on our high horse and look down on that other parent. Because obviously if they would have provided a more godly atmosphere at home, then, you know, their their child would have turned out differently. If only they followed the step-by-step procedure I followed in raising my kids, then they'd be where I'm at. You know, I heard a pastor say years ago, and I'll never forget, that when he was a young parent and a young pastor, he would preach on parenting, and he'd, he'd have, like, the ten rules, right, to raise your kid right and see them walk in righteousness. And then years would go by, and he'd realize, I got a lot less control than I thought. This is a lot less cause and effect than I thought. And he said, you know what, after a while, it was, like, three rules right, to, to raising a godly kid. And then finally, he said his sermon was, how to get through parenting without losing your sanity and sanctification, right? Because he realized as time goes on, like, we, we don't have as much control as we want. But that just means we can't take as much credit as we want. And, again, there's nothing wrong. Your kid is walking in faithfulness to God. High-five each other. Cheer them on. Again, hug your spouse and say, we did it, right? But God did so much of that. To parent and to steward the lives of children, as we talked about during the dedication, it's, it's graced to you by God. And we should pursue godly wisdom. How do I do this? We should pursue God's grace and good practice when it comes to parenting. It's why we do life groups at City Life, like, what is it, raising our kids God's way, right? And to do it well, and again, to see fruit of righteousness in your child's life, it's a grace. It should be treasured. It should be celebrated. But let's be more inclined to praise God for it than we are to subscribe to pride. Because you know what the other side of of pride is and really why I wanted to hit on this in this series is because when we assume control, we can take far too much blame, way too much blame. You think about even just different situations like the, the spouse of an unfaithful partner, right, who's just asking all these questions. What could I have done differently? How could I have done differently? Or, or even just kids of, of divorced parents, it starts young where they're thinking, how could I have acted differently so that they would have stayed together as if it was all in their control? And sometimes I think we do the same thing as parents. And again, I wanted to go here because there are good parents who are great parents who blame themselves for the path their children chose. And they spend their life carrying a weight that God didn't intend for them to carry. Just guilt that God never intended for them to carry. You know, a wayward child, as I was to my parents, wasn't irrefutable proof that they'd failed as parents. My parents were great parents. But many parents take it as proof positive of their own shortcomings. And we add to our suffering by assuming power and control that we never truly had. You know, these are simultaneous truths. That we're accountable for how we parent our children, but we aren't accountable for how they turn out. That's why as much as 
anything in life, parenting has the power to just burst our bubble, the bubble we have, the bubble we live in where we think we have control. Reminds us of this truth of life that, yeah, we bear sacred responsibilities, we have sacred callings, but we don't always have ultimate control. Again, Proverbs puts an emphasis on the responsibility we have to teach, raise up, sow into the next generation. And you can take that home with you as a parent, as a teacher, as a mentor, as a leader, whatever it is you're doing. But Proverbs, again and again, it puts the onus and the responsibility for learning not on the teacher but on the student. It's one of the most frustrating and yet liberating things in ministry and in life is you, you can't make decisions for people. Time and time again, like I, it's like slow pitch. You can throw it right over the plate as slow as possible. They still got to swing the bat. And you see that again and again in life. But again, to be stripped of this illusion of control, it can be discomforting. It can be disconcerting. But paradoxically, it can also be a comfort. Because when we give up control, we can find rest in the one who truly is in control. We can lean into Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and God the Father again and again, just as we were talking about. When you're parenting, you're going you're gonna to trip, you're going to stumble, but God will pick you up again and again and give you grace. When we give up control, we realize that we can lean in the one who truly has control. And like the farmer and the garden, again, this picture of gardening, there's this beautiful parable in Mark. And in ministry, it's, it's always served me well, and I'm sure as a parent, it will serve me well in the future. This farmer does everything he can, does the work, is responsible, plants the seed, covers it with soil, no doubt waters it a little bit, but then he goes to bed because <laughs> everything, else, everything else just has to happen. It's out of his control. Right? There's so many seeds that we're called to plant, not just in our children's life, but in the people all around us. And we can labor, we can be responsible in that. We have this sacred duty to, to do it, and we can do it, but there's so much. You cover it in prayer, go to sleep. You know, whether you're a, a parent that's neck deep in parenting right now, you're losing sleep daily, or you're a parent that, that your kids aren't even in the house anymore, but you're losing sleep over what ifs, I pray that God will be able to give you a peace and a rest, that, that those seeds you planted, they're still there. He's still in control. You know, grass seeds, I speak of it a lot because it was my life. There are seeds that are planted in your life that may sit there season after season, maybe years before there's just the right temperature, just the right moisture, and that seed takes root. Again, we're not called to give up hope. We're called to trust in God. But going back to gardening, all the way back to the garden, back to Adam and back to Eve, they teach us a couple things that we can close with. For one, I think they can cancel once and for all from the very first pages of Scripture this idea that the perfect atmosphere, a good atmosphere, will produce good people. They had the perfect setup in Eden. And they didn't have just leadership from Joe Schmo, me, right? They had leadership from God the Father, perfectly loving, <laughs> almighty, sovereign, omniscient, all these good things. They had him leading the way in the perfect setup in Eden, and yet they stumbled and fell because God gives us free will. So let's not subscribe to this idea that, that godly atmospheres automatically produce godly people. Because sometimes it's just out of our control. But we can trust in God. And then also I'd say we are under a curse. Maybe you say, time out, throw the flag. <laughs> what do we just talk about all this time? But I'm not talking about anything from your parents. I'm not talking about a curse of ham. No, keep turning to the left. Go all the way back to Adam. Our sin nature is a clear and present danger. 
And when it arises in our children, the finger shouldn't point to the parent. No, you, you point all the way back to the garden. You point all the way back to Adam. It says in Romans 5, verse 12, and then verses 17 through 18, it says, When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Again, as we read in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. That curse of Adam was laid on Jesus, and he took it on for me, and he took it on for you. And we're no longer bound to sin, bound to bear judgment for it either. You aren't trapped in some cosmic cause and effect. You have agency. You're not trapped. You're not bound. You're not ch chained by either your father's sins or even better, you're not chained by your own sins. Because you've been given the gift of grace, the gift of mercy and freedom because of what Jesus did at the cross. And because of that, we have this gift of agency and purpose and a mission in life to leave a legacy that points to Jesus Christ, the one that saved us to pass the baton. But you know, whenever you start sharing about evangelism or, or, or pouring into the next generation or, or doing any of this, so often it, it feels like, oh man, that's another box to check. It's another task to take up. But you know, one of the best ways that you can pour into the next generation, again, whether it's as a parent, a pastor, a mentor, a friend, walk in Christ, walk with Christ, and do it passionately. Young people, if you're a parent, you know they're sensitive to inconsistency, right? They're sensitive to inconsistencies. It's one of the main reasons that youth turn from the religion of their parents. I talked to two people over the last two weeks who, who felt hurt by the church and left the church because when they were young, when they were younger, because of this same issue, discrimination and racism in the church, where they saw it and they're like, the hypocrisy, and they left. Live in Christ. Live with Christ. Do it passionately, do it with character, do it with integrity, and your life leaves a legacy. It leaves a testimony of not just your faithfulness, because we'll be unfaithful from time to time, but God's faithfulness and his grace. It's one of the simplest ways to sow a seed in the next generation. Just live your life well, be passionate about Christ, and live with character and live with integrity. Because, again, that seed of, of legacy and that testimony will bear fruit. You know, your life, it does bear this so many different sacred responsibilities, from parenting to leading to ministry that God calls on you. But again, we just remember that we don't have ultimate control. That's not just parenting. If I could have the worship team come up, you know, we talk about evangelism. Talk about reaching out to others and sharing the love of God with them. You plant seeds. You do the task. <laughs> you're faithful. You're responsible. But then there's so much that the Holy Spirit does that God does, that we simply have to put our trust in him and feel that peace and feel that rest that comes with his power and his sovereignty. But, you know, we're called to leave a legacy that's bigger than just ourselves, that reaches out beyond the walls of this place, beyond the walls of our home. And what does that take? More committing to God, less pride, more gratitude, less credit, more praise. Jesus, we recognize that we can't save anybody. God, we couldn't even save ourselves from the 
the weight, the curse of sin. But you did, and we're no longer slaves to fear. We're no longer slaves to guilt. We're no longer slaves to shame. You know, if we could stand, we're going to go back into worship, but it's a very famous passage in Scripture in the Bible. It's in Psalm 23, verse 3. Probably heard it before where it says, He restores my soul, and He leads me on paths of righteousness. Right? Restoration is still in store for so many people that we know. Praise God it was in store for me. Praise God it was in store for you. Where he restored your soul and put you on the path of righteousness. And as we walk this path, we're called to invite others onto it. We're called to point our children to it, to point the next generation to it, to point those that not just are our children, but all of God's children to this path that God's placed us on. Christ died so that each one of us could be adopted into his family. We're truly a family of faith here under his blood. But God, I pray that you would help us, like the farmer, to be faithful, to do the work, to sow the seeds, to share our faith, to share the hope we have and point people to this path that you've restored us and placed us on. But God, I pray that we would trust your Holy Spirit, God, that's strong in our weakness, does what we can't. God, I pray that that would give us peace. God, that that would allow us to rest in you. God, that this wouldn't be some weight or yoke that's too heavy to carry, God, but you create us for it because your Holy Spirit works in us. Jesus, I thank you that whatever is weighing us down tonight, you ask us to lay it down at the foot of the cross and leave here freed. Whatever half-truths have kept us in bondage, whatever half-truths has kept us enslaved to fear, anxiety, stress, I don't know what it is for you, but if there's a weight you're carrying, a chain that's still wrapped around your wrist or ankles, God, I pray that we will be able to lay it at the foot of the cross tonight and walk in the freedom that comes from your truth. You said that we will know the truth, have the truth, and it will set us free. God, I pray that we will be free to walk out of here in your love and your grace and your mercy. If you need to come up to the altar as we sing to lay it down, do that. You know, there's people in the back that would love to pray for you. The Nawadis, they'd love to pray for you. Do that. I'd love to pray for you. But let's worship and let's sing. And, and again, there's a weight. Let's lay it down in this place. Let's walk in the freedom that Jesus promised. And let's praise him for it. In Jesus' name.